Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, the book of Amos, chapter 8. All right, well, last week in uh, Amos chapter 7, we began studying a series of four visions that the prophet received from the Lord. Now, because of the place in the Amos manuscript where someone several hundred years ago decided to arbitrarily divide chapter 7 from chapter 8, and remembering originally there were no chapter or verse markings or divisions, the fourth vision wound up being placed in chapter 8, which I think essentially ruined the flow of the presentation of the four visions. Now, all four visions are about what Jehovah intends to do to Israel as punishment for their unfaithfulness to Him. The first two are quite different from the second two. The first two have Amos hearing what God intends, and then Amos advocating for Israel as an intercessor, and then God relenting by saying He won't do it. The second pair of visions has God interrogating Amos, Amos responding, but then God refusing to relent. So, let's read Amos chapter 8 together. Open your Bibles to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Here is what Adonai Elohim showed me. There in front of me was a basket of summer fruit, and he asked, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, a basket of summer fruit. And then Adonai said to me, The end has come for my people. I will never again overlook their offenses. When that time comes, the songs in the temple will be wailings, says Adonai Elohim. There will be many dead bodies, everywhere silence will reign. Listen, you who swallow the needy and destroy the poor of the land. You say, well, when will Rosh Hodesh be over, so we can market our grain, and Shabbat, so we can sell wheat? You measure the grain in a small ephah, but the silver in heavy shekels, fixing the scales so that you can cheat buying the needy for money and the poor for a pair of shoes, and sweeping up the refuse of the wheat to sell. Adonai swears by Jacob's pride, I will forget none of your deeds, ever. Won't the land tremble for this and mourn who lives in the land? It will all rise just like the Nile, be in turmoil, and then subside, like the Nile in Egypt. And when that time comes, says Adonai Elohim, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your festivals into mourning, and all your songs into wailing. I will make you put sackcloth around your waists, and shave your heads bald in grief. I will, also, I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. The time's coming, says Adonai Elohim, when I will send famine over the land, 
not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Adonai. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north to east, running back and forth, seeking the word of Adonai, but they'll not find it. When that time comes, young women and men will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Shomron, who say, As your God, Dan, lives, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and never get up again. Well, the nature of the fourth vision that begins this chapter is the same as the third vision that ended chapter 7. Both are wordplay visions. That is, the words that sound alike when spoken are chosen to present this vision. Therefore, the visions are more symbolic than literal. Thus, in the third vision we saw that a wordplay on the Hebrew word for ten, anak, and moan, anak, are used to explain symbolically that the defensive walls of Israel's walled cities will be like soft tin to the invaders who will easily breach them. And because of the city's residents, because of that, the city's residents will moan and groan as they're put to the sword by the enemy. This fourth vision of chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, bases its wordplay on a type of fruit contained in a basket, often is translated, as in our complete Jewish Bibles, as summer fruit. To be clear, the items, the objects that are mentioned in this vision are almost irrelevant. They have no significance. They were chosen based on how the words sound when they're pronounced out loud. The basket is merely a woven basket used to gather any type of fruit. And if we can draw any conclusion at all about the fruit, it was pictured as, as, containing, in the, as pictured containing in this vision, very likely it's figs. That's the most likely. God uses the sight of this basket kind of like a prop to present the vision. So now in verse 2, the focus becomes not what the actual object is, it's not about a basket of figs, but rather what it sounds like when the word is spoken out loud. The Hebrew word for summer fruits is kites, kites, which is essentially a homonym for another and different Hebrew word that sounds just like it when spoken. However, that second word means the final hour, or the hour of doom. Now, a homonym is a relationship between two words that sound the same or are spelled the same, but those two words have entirely different meanings. Often, they're opposites. Now, interestingly, the homonym of this sound-like Hebrew words in the fourth vision only works, catch this, it only works when the words are spoken using the dialect 
of Hebrew that was spoken in the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel. It wouldn't work at all if it was pronounced as the words were pronounced in Judah. So this makes it all the clearer that this vision is aimed squarely at Ephraim, Israel, and not necessarily to Judah. And as with the third vision, the meaning is a very simple one. God's declaration of Israel's violent demise and destruction at the hand of a foreign invader will neither be delayed nor reversed. It's going to happen. Now, verse 3 concludes the fourth vision by portraying a wholesale slaughter of the population of Ephraim, Israel. Now, formerly joyful and uplifting songs sung and played at the temple in Bethel will become funeral songs of mourning because of the piles and piles of dead bodies stacked up throughout the land. What the four visions depict when you take them together as a whole is of certain unavoidable, severe, widespread destruction and death to every level of Israelite society, but not of total annihilation of the people. God will preserve a remnant that will later on, as it turns out about 27 centuries later on, they will return to the land. And this return is happening in our time as I speak of it. Amazing. What a privilege to live in the time we live. Now, verses 4 to 6 speak about the shady and the hypocritical business practices that go on in the northern kingdom. By the 8th century BC, Israel had evolved into a, it was basically a two class society of haves and have nots. Not by accident, this economic system was deliberate and it was designed to benefit the upper class by subjugating the lower class. This is directly against the moral code laid out by God in the Law of Moses and is something that modern Western societies need to take into consideration, even in our time. Although a number of passages in the Torah deal with this matter, I think these two passages do a good job of summing up God's attitude and commandments about societal structure, especially as it concerns finances and the economy. In Exodus, we read this, Exodus 23, verse 6, Do not deny justice in his lawsuit simply because he's poor. Then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11, If someone among you is needy, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand from giving to your needy brother. No, you must open your hand to him and lend him enough to meet his need and enable him to obtain what he wants. Guard yourself against allowing your heart to entertain the mean spirit thought that because the seventh year, the year of Shemitah, is at hand, you would be stingy towards your needy brother and not give him anything. 
For then he may cry out to Adonai against you, and it will be your sin. Rather, you must give to him, and you are not to be grudging when you give it to him. You do, you do this, Adonai your God will bless you in all your work and everything you undertake, for there will always be poor people in the land. That's why I'm giving you this order. You must open your hand to your poor and needy brother in your land. It just doesn't get any more clear. Now, I pointed out several times during our study of Amos that one of the chief complaints that Jehovah has against Israel is the treatment, or better, maltreatment of the poor, the lower class, or of Israelite society by their upper class. Every society on earth is susceptible to not properly caring for the less fortunate in their own society, because to do so violates the second of two foundational principles that God has built His moral code upon. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some societies have delegated that duty to the government. Others rely entirely on the charity of individuals. Clearly, God wants a balance of responsibility between the government and individuals. Then there's also this issue of exploitation. That is, taking advantage of the lower class workers by not fairly paying them for their labors. So often this shows up as an enormous imbalance of the elite wealthy becoming wealthy beyond even our ability to comprehend it, while at the same time the people they employ have a hard time making ends meet. God views such behavior as greed and as lack of fairness. How to solve and properly balance these matters in our modern, complex societies takes much wisdom. But the beginning of wisdom is to take God's commandments seriously concerning caring for the poor and treating employees fairly. Ephraim Israel did not take these commands seriously, and now the wealthy and the elite are on the brink of not only having it all taken away from them, but also by likely losing their lives. And this is at God's doing. Let those with ears hear. Now, while verse 4 opened the passage, speaking of the economic hypocrisy that was going on, verse 5 gets into the actual accusations. The first accusation is that Israelite merchants want Rosh Hodesh, that's the new moon observance, to hurry up and get over with. All right, so they can get back to selling and making a profit. And it is essentially the same attitude about Shabbat. Shabbat has been reduced to an annoyance that prevents them from doing business on that day. It's interesting to note that apparently Ephraim Israel observed Rosh Hodesh by making it an additional Sabbath day, as is done with some of the biblical feasts. Rosh Hodesh, the head of the month, 
signaled the moment that the month changed, and it was done according to the appearance of the new moon. As an aside, the new moon is not to be confused with the full moon. The new moon is when the moon's 100% dark. Now, during the biblical era, the Hebrew calendar was a solar-lunar hybrid. The lunar calendar was used to fix the months, the solar calendar was used to fix the year. However, since a new moon appears every 29 and one-half days, then calendar-wise, one month the new moon began a 29-day month, and the next month it began a 30-day month, since there's really little other way to account for half a day on a calendar. Therefore, since a solar year is 365 days, but 12 new moons, 12 lunar months, add up to 354 days, a way had to be developed to account for the 11-day difference. Thus, every few years an additional month was added. Yes, in some years of the Hebrew calendar, a year consists of 13 months. Now what is interesting is that there's little evidence in the Torah that Rosh Hodesh was ever intended by God to be an additional Sabbath day each month. The main instruction about observing Rosh Hodesh comes from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 10.10 we read, also on your days of rejoicing, at your designated times, and on Rosh Hodesh, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. These will be your reminder before your God, I am Adonai your God. Now while there is some evidence that at various points in Israel's history that Rosh Hodesh was scrupulously observed by Israel. There's no reasonable evidence to say it was also treated as a Sabbath. So what we learn from this passage in Amos is that one of the many religious observances of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC was to not only observe the new moon celebration, but then also to treat it as a Sabbath. See. Ephraim Israel was a deeply religious kingdom. They went out of their way to ritually embellish every event, every observance. The problem was they essentially rewrote the Torah as they saw fit incorporating their traditions, and then added many pagan elements to it as well. Now, as happens in such situations, these new observances, along with the customs used to celebrate them, are declared holy by the religious authorities, and therefore are holy to the people, with all of them believing that God is quite pleased with their observances. Christianity has done the same with the non-biblical holidays of Easter and Christmas. You know, it's one thing to add an observance as a religious tradition. It is quite another to declare it holy.
Only God decides and declares what is holy. Humans have no authority to do so. Although, I will say, Catholicism says the Pope indeed does have that authority. On the surface, you know, this might seem harmless enough. And to speak against it, making a mountain out of a molehill, it's not. Rather, it is the same slippery slope Israel began to slide down, which began with small changes to God's Torah and to various biblical ordained observances, but that soon led to bigger ones and bigger ones until their traditions and their customs just overwhelmed God's biblical commands. What we wind up with is a man-made religion instead of a most specific, God-ordained and God-designed biblical faith. And this sort of scenario greatly riled Yeshua, and He spoke out about it. In Mark 7.13 He says this, Thus with your traditions which you handed down, which you handed down to you, you nullify the Word of God, and you do other things like this. Now Amos paints a pretty unflattering picture of the merchants and the wealthy of Israel as begrudging that they even have to stop making money on Rosh Hodesh and on Shabbat. See, they pretend piousness, but in their hearts they're greedy. This greedy nature continues into the next issue Amos brings up, which is the use of unethical business practices in order to increase their profits. They use false weights and measures. Now first, they shrink the size of an ephah. Now an ephah equates to about half of a bushel. That is, they use a basket for measurement purposes that is supposed to legally represent an ephah. But in reality, the basket they use is intentionally made smaller. Second, they overweight the shekel. Now, a shekel, unlike today in Israel, was not a unit of money, you know, like a dime, or like a quarter. Rather, it was a measurement of weight, like an ounce. A shekel at that time was the equivalent of about two-thirds of an ounce. The trickery worked this way. A balance scale was used. Merchants had, a small, had small standard weights that represented various amounts of a shekel. One weight might be a half a shekel, another a shekel, another two shekels, so on. If what was owed was one shekel of silver, the merchant would put a one shekel weight on one side of the balance scale and then put an amount of the buyer's silver on the other side until the scale balanced, indicating that the amount of silver then equaled one shekel. But the merchants were dishonest. They would use weights that were a little bit heavier than they were supposed to be. So for instance, perhaps a supposed one shekel standard weight might actually have been made to weigh 1.1 shekels. 
Therefore, when they put that weight on the balance scale, the buyer would have to put on the other side of the scale an amount of silver that he thought was just one shekel, but it was more. And of course, was none the wiser for the deception. The third way the merchants cheated was simply by using scales that were rigged in their favor. The Law of Moses specifically addressed this issue. Leviticus 19, verses 35 to 36, Do not be dishonest when measuring length, weight, or capacity. <laughs> Rather use an honest balance scale, honest weights, an honest bushel dry measure, and an honest gallon liquid measure. I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now verse 6 speaks of buying the needy. This is quite literally talking about slavery, human trafficking. This is something that was accepted and par for the course on most nations of the earth at that time. But it was not allowed according to the Law of Moses. This slavery is not the same as bond servitude in which a person agreed or was judicially sentenced to work for another person until the debt was paid off. A poor person, I'm talking about Hebrews, a poor Hebrew person had few ways to acquire material things if they didn't have the money on hand, which they hardly ever did. And bond servitude was one of them, but they were not slaves. They were not Hebrews owned by their Hebrew masters. They were closer to how we think of laborers under contract to their employer. However, clearly in Israel, they had adopted the common practice of their pagan neighbors of literally buying and selling human beings. Now, earlier in Amos chapter 2, the practice of selling the poor into slavery was condemned. Here, the practice of buying them is spoken about. The buyers are those with money who can purchase a human being at a dirt cheap price so they can use them as the cheapest possible labor in order for them to make more profit. To buy a poor person for a pair of shoes, as it says here, or sandals, is actually just an ancient expression, just as dirt cheap is an expression, it's not literal. They're also accused of sweeping up the refuse from the threshing floor and adding it to the grain they sell, or selling it separately to the very poorest as a cheap food. Verse 7 makes it clear that despite the unethical merchants and the greedy rich thinking they are getting away with something, God sees what they're doing, and He never forgets what, he's, what He saw. Now, for one reason, Jehovah has nominated Himself as the protector of the poor. But what is this about Jehovah making a vow and swearing to uphold it according to Jacob's pride? The reality is that this is the only place in the Bible that we find such an expression. So no one can be certain what it's getting at. Perhaps the two most common interpretations are that first, Jacob's pride is the land 
that God gave to Israel. And second, it is actually an ironic expression that God offers to guarantee to Israel something that is based on Israel's pride and arrogance. Now, I don't know if it's one or the other or neither. The important point is, God is making a vow to do what He says He's going to do. And here, to never forget means that punishment for the listed crime or crimes is going to happen sooner or later. Time may pass such that Israel forgets about their crimes. God doesn't forget. And punishment will be unleashed upon them at some point. Verse 8, the abundant land of Israel, so fertile, productive, a land that has brought forth great wealth for Israel, will suddenly become a death pit for them. A complete reversal of their salvation history accompanied with a complete reversal of their blessings history. What was an incredible blessing for them, their land, becomes a place of torment and death, much the same way an autoimmune disease works in a human. Our immune systems were created by God to protect us from illness. But when something goes wrong with them and they become corrupted, what was intended for our protection becomes an enemy that afflicts us. Now, in speaking about the convulsing of the earth, no doubt it's referring to earthquakes. Earthquakes are among the most common symbols of God's anger and wrath in the Bible. One of the most vivid and memorable biblical passages describing an earthquake and its effects is found in the book of Isaiah. So I'm going to read it to you Isaiah 24, 17 through 20. Terror pit and trap are upon you, you are living on earth. He who flees the sound of terror will fall into the pit. He who climbs up out of the pit will be caught in the trap, for the windows above have been opened and the earth's foundations shake. The earth cracks, it breaks open. The earth crumbles to pieces, the earth trembles and totters. The earth staggers to and fro like a drunk. It sways back and forth like a watchman's shelter. Its transgression weighs heavy upon it. It will fall and not rise again. In an earthquake, the land literally trembles because it rises and it contorts and it usually then falls back again. Each cataclysmic movement causing fear and more damage. So it is likened by Amos to the Nile River. Now, the Nile River also rises and floods, then it recedes and rests. It could be good, it waters and fertilizes fields, but it can also cause terrible damage and death at times. Well, the opening words of verse 9 <clears throat> on that day indicate the beginning of a new literary unit. On that day is equivalent to the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. It is something that is guaranteed to come. 
but it's not speaking about a specific 24 hour period that we can kind of circle on our calendar with a day and a name. Rather, it is about some unspecified time in the future and of an unspecified, unspecified period of time during which God's judgment is finally poured out. God says that when that time arrives, He will make the sun go down at noon and during normal daylight hours all will turn to darkness, the darkness of nighttime. What this is doing is really speaking about a full solar eclipse. That is, the sun is not going to literally rush across the sky at double speed in order to set over the horizon hours before it normally does. Rather, at midday, at the brightest part of the day, the sun's light will so diminish that it will be just as like when the sun disappears over the horizon every 24 hours. See, the idea may have been for Israel to recall that helpless stumbling around experienced by the Egyptians in order to get Pharaoh to release Israel. Or I think more likely it is to recall a curse pronounced in the Law of Moses for Israel's rebelliousness against Him, since Amos constantly equates Israel's sins and their punishment to what is said in the Torah. In Deuteronomy 28, 28-29, Adonai will strike you with insanity, with blindness and utter confusion. You will grope about at noon like a blind person groping in the dark, unable to find your way. You will be continually oppressed and robbed, and there will be no one to save you. Just as with the fear, the mourning, the lamenting, that occurs after an earthquake, verse 10 says it will be the same for the aftermath of the solar eclipse. It's not hard to understand the devastating emotional and psychological effects of a big earthquake, but why would a solar eclipse freak out everybody so badly since it causes no actual harm? It's because both of these things signify the unleashing of God's wrath. Festivals are usually a time of joy, they're a time of celebration, but not when this cosmic event happens that announces God's intent to harm. Rather, there will be intense mourning and wailing all across the land. Donning sackcloth, shaving one's head, these are standard ways that the ancients mourned. The grieving is said to be so intense that it will be as sorrowful as when an only son dies. See, the death of an only son signified the end of a family's bloodline. And little was as greatly feared as that eventuality. The idea is that the grief of the Israelites will be as universal as it is extreme. All will be affected. There will be none spared. Well, we are now presented in verse 11 with another oracle of doom. God says He's going to send a famine over the land, but it's not going to be a famine in the typical sense of a lack of food 
but rather it's going to be a lack of his presence. Yehovah will become inaccessible and unavailable. What's meant by this? Well, especially in ancient times, the presence of one's deity was paramount in people's thoughts and religion. The presence of one's God was taken quite literally. It was believed that the temples housed the deities and that they literally were located there. A temple was where a particular deity's priests would approach him or her. And especially since it was thought that deities were regional and that they operated within specified territories, usually the territory of whatever's national god they were, then to the Israelites' way of thinking, Jehovah is saying he's going to leave the territory of Ephraim Israel. Just go away. And when the verse speaks of Israel being deprived of hearing the words of Jehovah, do not mistake this for meaning the word of Jehovah. Okay? This is not about people being unable to access the Torah. We might think of it as the Bible, what we often label today as God's Word. Rather, it means that Jehovah won't reside there any longer. Therefore, when He is sought by Israel to provide answers to problems or questions, the result will be silence. Further in that era, it was mainly God's prophets that provided communication from God to the people. It was the prophets that taught and warned and acted as intercessors for Israel. Thus, if God was not there in the land, then neither would His prophets be there. The people will lack the divine direction they claim to count upon. So this puts Israel at a distinct disadvantage against their neighbors as they will have their gods available to help them, but Israel won't. See, this is the disaster above all disasters for them. The survivors as exiles are going to find themselves in foreign lands where their gods are active, by, but where Israel's God is nowhere to be found. Even so, there's hope. And this hope was expressed in the Torah that Ephraim Israel barely knew any longer. In a most remarkable prophecy contained in the book of Deuteronomy, we read this Deuteronomy 4 25 through 31. When you have had children and grandchildren, and you've lived a long time in the land, you become corrupt, you make carved images a representation of something, and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai your God and provoked him, I will call on the sky and the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days there, but will be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples. And among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away, you will be left few in number. There you will serve gods which are the product of human hands. 
They're made of wood and stone, which can't see, hear, eat, smell. However, from there, you will seek Adonai your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your being. In your distress, when all these things have come upon you in the Akhirat Hayamim, that's the world to come, you will return to Adonai your God and you will listen to what he says. For Adonai your God is a merciful God. He will not fail you, he will not destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them. That's pretty powerful stuff. And this happened at least 600 years. This was prophesied before the fall of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel. Pretty amazing. Now, Amos in verse 12 amplifies this lack of divine direction by picturing the people metaphorically staggering from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. See, this is about people desperately searching for God's direction and wisdom, but not finding it. Here, however, the meaning of the phrase, Word of Jehovah, shifts from what it meant in verse 11. In verse 11, it had to do with God communicating through His prophets to the people of Israel on a regular basis. In verse 12, the sense is of both the Torah, that is the Law of Moses, and prophetic revelations. The expression sea to sea means from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea. From the north to the east speaks of Israel's northern and then eastern territorial boundaries. Now, one might ask why south wasn't mentioned, north to south rather than north to east. Well, I can't be certain. I think. It's because the south of Israel is Judah. And Judah is not yet having God remove his hand of blessing over them, nor is he yet removing himself from Judah. In other words, this oracle only pertains to Ephraim, Israel, not to Judah. Now, this clarity would have been important to Amos, and it would have been important to the Hebrew people of that era. Well, verse 13 opens with the words, at that time. Now, this is a rather common prophetic word formula, if you would, that indicates at the least a new thought's coming, or more typically, a new oracle of judgment is coming. Now, that time is, of course, speaking about the moment that the many predicted judgments against Israel finally happen, but offers no hint as to its nearness or to the distant future nature of those events. The prophecy is that young people will faint from thirst. Now, the word in Hebrew that is usually translated as young women or fair virgins is yafe. It means beautiful or it means handsome. So, in English, the better translation is beautiful virgin girls. The Hebrew that speaks of the young men is Bahur, and it means youthful males. Now, the notion is of young 
women and men, probably mid to late teens, those who are in the flower of their youth and the most resilient against hunger and disease, that they will suffer great thirst. This thirst ought to be taken literally as a lack of available water, which inevitably goes along with a famine. As is common in most cultures, it is so very sad for mature adults to see young people with their entire lives ahead of them being suddenly thrust into survival mode so early in life. Well, this thought continues on into verse 14. Those who swear, that is, those who make vows by the sin of Samaria, as still speaking of the youth who have been trained since birth in the perverted man-made religion practiced by the northern kingdom. These youth, they don't know any other way. The sin of Samaria it might speak of the various Baal idols that were in rampant use in Samaria, or it may also be indicating that golden calf, God, that was erected in both Dan and Bethel. The young people, when making vows, and vow making was a rather regular activity in that era, call on the gods of Samaria as their guarantor instead of Jehovah, God of Israel. It is in this way that such invoking of false gods is sin. Well, as thy God, Dan, lives is an oath formula. I have no doubt this is referring to the golden calf God erected in the city of Dan, a God they nonetheless called the God of Israel. Now, although I've made this point before, I'm going to make it again. The people who spoke that oath and who worshiped the golden calf were sincere in their beliefs. They were sincere. And if you asked them who they were worshiping, they would say it was the God of Israel. Now, the absurdity of such a notion would have flown right over the heads of those ancient Ephraim Israelites, they would have seen no contradiction in using a pagan God symbol to represent their Israelite God, Jehovah, even one as strictly outlawed as a golden calf of all things. They were most sincere in what icon they worshipped and that it was godly and that they were convinced it was in line with the Torah. Yet they sincerely believe something, and sincerely believing in it doesn't make it the truth. I could sincerely believe I'm a garage door. That does not make me one. Such beliefs don't have to be as absurd as that is in order to put us on the wrong track. For Israel to have reached this point of mindless deception, it took many decades of incorrect doctrinal training. While the other oath formula quoted here, as the way of Beersheba lives, is similar to the last one. Although located in the south, 
in Judah, actually, Beersheba at this time identified more with Ephraim Israel than with Judah. So they too had some sort of idol that they worshipped there. To all these Israelite worshippers of false gods, the final words of God in this chapter are, they shall fall and never rise again. This means that their demise will be total. Israel has no hope that what has been prophesied will somehow pass them by or be called off. Well, we'll begin the final chapter of Amos the next time we meet.